Good morning. It is so nice to be back together to pick up First Timothy after the break. Hello also to our Tuesday night ladies that are, and those of you that are watching and listening online. Okay, so what did you guys think about the snow this morning? <laughs> I feel like if it had happened last month, I would have been really excited, but right now, I am ready for spring in the worst way, and the cold and the snow, I, that was not a pleasant surprise for me this morning, so. I, I'm here anyway, but if, you know, if God wanted to bring the sunshine back, I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain about that either. All right, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Holly, and I'm going to be teaching on 1 Timothy 4 today. So we are starting the halfway point in the book of 1 Timothy, and it feels like there have already been so many convicting and instructive words from the Apostle Paul. Like, I just sat this week thinking about what it would have been like to have been Timothy and to have been sitting under the direct discipleship of Paul. I don't know, sometimes people equate Nathan's preaching to a fire hose, and I wonder if the Apostle Paul wouldn't have also kind of been that way. Just information, you would have been writing everything down as fast as you could because he was just sharing so much. So anyway, moving on, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy might be a short 16 verses, but it is packed with deep and rich theology. Honestly, though, I don't really think we would expect anything different from Paul. Before we get to today's verses, though, I want to take a quick look at where we have been. In chapter 1, Paul instructs Timothy that he is to be the guardian of truth. Within that instruction, Paul gave Timothy the first of three warnings concerning false teaching that are within this letter. Today, we are going to be looking at that second warning. In chapter 2, he outlines practices of the church and the proper order for the body to align with truth. In chapter three, he instructs Timothy to raise up other leaders within the church with the same commitment to the truth. Not merely good teachers or loving ministers, but devoted defenders of the truth. Jackie did a great job in chapter three of explaining the mystery of godliness or how we can be like God. She said, we should all be showing the world that we know the mystery and it lives inside of us. Because see, we have the truth and the truth lives in us. John 8, 31 and 32 says, if you continue in my word, then you will, are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have been given the gift of the freedom from the penalty of sin with the truth of the gospel. And as Jesus reminds us in Luke 12, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. We have been entrusted not just with casual truth or a truth, but the truth. We as the church are all the representation of that truth to the world. Godliness is no longer a mystery to us because it has been revealed through the Holy Spirit. But with that great knowledge comes the great responsibility of rightly handling, teaching, and protecting truth. The point Paul is really hammering home for Timothy through this letter is that the way that you handle the truth really matters. The church is set apart to be a guardian of truth, and here in chapter 4, we start to understand not just the what and how, but the why of protecting truth. See, the church stands as a defender of truth, but it is important to note that we, the church, are not the source of truth. That is the word of God, but we are the protector of truth. And our responsibility to protecting the truth is not limited to our own consumption or understanding. We are to protect the truth for the sake of the entire unbelieving world. Because if we as the church, we should be the ones with a firm grasp of truth. If we aren't even sure what that truth is, 
When we literally have the Bible in our hands and we have the word of God written on our hearts, how do we expect the world who rejects God, who have made themselves an enemy of God, to understand or even recognize truth? All right, let's dive into today's text. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There is so much in these three verses. I could camp out right here on verses one through three all morning long, and we would barely scratch the surface of what Paul is saying. I will not do that though, I promise. We will actually move through everything else. So let's just start breaking this down. The Spirit explicitly says, we aren't sure exactly which scripture Paul is referencing at this point. We can infer that it was something that was well known to the people at the time. Perhaps it was something that was a teaching of the apostles or something prophetic that was being shared amongst the churches. What we do know for sure though, is that it was passionate and purposeful. The Spirit didn't casually say, the Spirit didn't allude. Paul says the Spirit explicitly says. So regardless of the means of the communication, we know the message is clear and the message is important. In the latter times, what are the latter times? Paul doesn't say end times or last days in this verse. He will do that specifically in his second letter to Timothy, and I do think that this is an important distinction that we need to understand. This doesn't mean that this isn't a warning for end times, but it also isn't just a warning for end times. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about the church. The apostasy that the Spirit is explicitly warning about is within the church. In 2 Timothy 3, when Paul warns that in the last days difficult times will come, that warning is concerning the world. But here, this warning is for you and I, it's for our body, and it's for the whole of Christendom. From among us, some will fall away. In making this time distinction, I think it's also important for us to understand that while we are looking for a future second coming of Christ, we should at the same time recognize that we are already within these latter times. Whether the second coming is tomorrow or 2,000 years from now, the shadow of apostasy is already falling upon the church. As Paul was writing these words, warning of latter times and falling away, falling away was already happening. This is the beginning of the birth pangs described in Matthew 24, 8 through 11. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. So basically, as bad as it is, it's going to get much worse. These birth pangs have already grown in intensity and frequency, but much worse is still yet to come. We need to understand that there is not going to be a reprieve from evil or demonic teaching. Literally from the Garden of Eden, Satan has been trying to thwart God's plan. God gave us truth, so Satan perverts truth. Now the Spirit didn't say that in latter times people will walk away from the church, although this will be true of many. And he didn't say that people would lose faith, 
although this will also be true of many. He said they will fall away from the faith. So what exactly does this mean? The faith is literally the the essential doctrine of truth. It's God's word. It's the gospel. Everything we know to be truth because it has been given to us by Jesus who is himself truth. So how do we fall away from the truth? The Greek word for fall away is aphistomy, which means to desert, refrain, or withdraw oneself from. This is an act of submission to the world. It's an act of disengaging with logic and reason with truth. This isn't even necessarily rejecting the truth. It's actually much worse than that. It's being so unconcerned about the truth that you stop caring altogether. It's spiritual apathy. John Stott says apathy is the acceptance of the unacceptable. See, Satan doesn't need us to fight the word of God. He just needs us to stop caring about it long enough to make us complacent. He just needs us to stop pushing against what is unacceptable. So what is going to cause this leaving, this falling away, this withdrawal? Instead of being devoted to the word, they will become devoted to the teachings of demons. So we hear teaching of demons and that, okay, that's something scary. We recognize teachings of demons. No, we really don't. Because it's just popular thought that comes from a demonic origin that people would rather promote than the truth. Does this sound familiar? Just look at the way the world today is presenting love and you understand how quickly truth can be twisted. This apostasy is a spiritual attack. It is happening to our churches today. We see many removed from truth. These are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but then start to distance themselves from the truth. They're compromising out of a desire to be acceptable in the sight of the world. And this acceptance starts to matter more to them than standing firm in the truth. Now we have lots of words to describe these believers. Backslidden, deconstructed, walking in the flesh. Some would even say that they're not real believers at all. Others would say that they are true believers, but they've merely walked away from their faith. Now this comes down to your view on eternal security. And as much as I wish that we could spend time talking about eternal security this morning, we we really just don't have time to even get into that uh, theological debate. Because the point here is that it doesn't really matter. Whether you think that these are true believers or they're not true believers, that's not the point that Paul is making. We aren't the ones who are judging someone else's faith. God knows their heart. So while we might grieve that we don't know whether or not someone is truly truly of faith, whether they're truly our brother and sister in Christ, that doesn't really affect our actions. We are still to consistently, lovingly, and unashamedly point them to truth, whether it is truly for the first time or we're merely giving them a reminder. That is our calling and that is our responsibility as the guardians of truth. Now, if you're like me, you might find yourself wondering how someone who really believes in the power of God could reject truth. But let us consider the Israelites after crossing the Red Sea. They knew God was God. They had experienced God. They had just been saved by God in a huge, fantastic, and completely visual way. Then they started walking in the wilderness, away from the life they knew. Now that life was full of slavery, having their babies murdered, having their bodies beaten, and their spirits broken. But they got hungry. 
and they got impatient. And two chapters later, they were begging to return to the comfort of Egypt. They weren't denying God was God. It just wasn't worth it to endure the hardship of freedom. They were willing to put back on the yoke of slavery or even death just to fill their stomachs. Because the comfort of worldly things was of greater importance than the God who saved them. This is the problem with loving the world. When our hearts are turned towards the things of this world, we are willing to compromise truth for the acceptance, comfort, and temporal success we gain here on earth. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. They turn from truth to myths. They listen for what they want to hear instead of what is true. We will see a great deception within the church. The church in the end times is not going to be strong. It will be weak. It will be infiltrated with the philosophy of demons. We might even see the true church going underground, and the thing that is left and identified by the world as the church is just a mere shell with a veneer of faith. Because teaching of truth is being replaced with false teaching. And this false teaching comes by means of the hypocrisy of liars, fake, two-faced, hypocritical liars. It's important for us to understand, though, that false teaching isn't always easy to recognize. It often pops up undetected at first. Because most people don't start teaching outright heresy. It starts with small compromises or the acceptance of small falsehoods a desire to live a certain way that isn't in the alignment with the word of God. We can take this all the way back to the garden. Satan, the father of lies, deceived Eve with a simple tactic. God said this, but so what? You can choose something different. This simple lie is the basis of all lies. Satan didn't say, reject God to Eve. He didn't say, stop believing in God. He simply gave her the option to shrug God off and make her own truth. Yes, it was rejecting God. It was trying to reduce God from his rightful place of authority and denying his divinity. But it was packaged in a way that made it seem like all she was doing was making her own destiny. Just like the lies we hear every day. Just like the small compromises that are causing generations to withdraw themselves from God's truth. The truth in pursuit of their own truth. False teachers with pretty white lies are so dangerous because they don't appear to be evil. These aren't sketchy people that we feel like we want to avoid. They're charming, they're personable. They speak with authority on the biblical things and they talk about the spirit. But as Pastor Doug put it so well, they have a spirit, it's just not the Holy Spirit. These little compromises over time act as a numbing of the soul. Paul says they have been seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Their conscience has literally been cauterized. All sensitivity is gone. Doctrine has been compromised to the point where they can't even see the truth anymore. They don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore. This is a really, really strong warning for us. Compromise desensitizes us from the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. 
This desensitization comes from repeated exposure, repeated compromise, repeatedly choosing the wisdom of the world over the truth of God. They have denied or resisted truth for so long, they are no longer even able to fully understand the truth anymore. They believe the lie. This should take us back to 1 Timothy 1.19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. The reason Paul is so concerned about instructing Timothy to guard his conscience is to prevent this searing that he is warning about. And again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.9 to the deacons, by holding, or but holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. This clear conscience is a blessing that comes from being right with God and holding firm to truth. In verse three, Paul is going to directly address some of the perversions of truth that the church of Ephesus was dealing with, specifically the forbidding of marriage and the abstaining from eating certain foods. These sacrifices speak to the two strongest longings in the human body, sex and hunger. The denial of these bodily acts comes from a philosophy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was plaguing the early church. It sought to separate the flesh from the spirit. Gnostic philosophy taught that everything done in the flesh was evil, while the spirit was good. Now, this idea impacted Christianity in two major ways. First, it promotes the idea that physical acts like sex within marriage or the enjoyment of food were evil because they were pleasures of the physical body. But secondly, and even more important than that, they argued that God, in order to be good, could only be spiritual. Therefore, Jesus could not be fully God and fully man. And then he could not come in the evil flesh, which nullifies his entire life, death, and resurrection. This heresy found ground within the church as many seeking new truths and special insights clung to the legalistic ideas it promoted. See, legalism is a slippery slope for believers. We want to have standards. We want to have rules for our behavior to keep us on track. And rules and standards are good. But when our adherence to rules begins to overshadow grace and truth, we've lost complete sight of the gospel. We have started to behave more like the <clears throat> Pharisees seeking the letter of the law and not the intent of the law. According to Wearsby, one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity, when in reality, it leads the believer back to a second childhood of Christian experience. So instead of growing in godliness, we are reverting backward. We are placing ourselves back under the law. Why do we always seem to want to go back to the old covenant? Why do we keep trying to earn what we could never earn? We keep trying to do our part to earn our salvation, but our salvation is already purchased. It's a done deal. Our focus should be on advancing the kingdom, not trying to go back under the law. Because our gospel, the gospel, it's not based on work. It's based on God's grace. Legalism is a mean of trying to gain standing with God on our own through invented rules and extra sacrifice. Legalism seeks to turn the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. Implementing dietary laws that, and undermining the gift of marriage are merely means of taking something God has created and called good and calling them evil. When we begin to set standards for our sacrifice to God, 
We make it all about us. It's our effort. This is the opposite of the gospel. We are justified not in good works, not in sacrifice, and not in the denying of our flesh, but as Romans 3.24 says, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Calling what is good evil is just as dangerous as calling what is evil good. But see, we are generally much quicker at recognizing if something evil is called good. Someone mentions abortion, homosexuality, abuse, and we are right there with a defense against evil. But we are slower to recognize and speak up about things that are good being called evil. This is more subtle. Sometimes it takes more processing through the argument to determine the truth. And sometimes we honestly just don't want to speak up and out ourselves as one of those orthodox Christians who really takes all this stuff so seriously. Back in 1996, when the Defense Against Marriage Act was signed, there was a lot of debate over whether we were allowed to say that marriage was just between a man and a woman. This is something good, something God-ordained, something scripturally supported, but it was being questioned from pulpits across the country. Followers of Christ were debating whether or not we were being unchristian by supporting biblical marriage. It's sad if we look at our culture today and see how far from there we have spiraled. But that's how compromise works. We weren't asked at first to support transgender transformations in teenagers. We would have thrown up our hands in protest. We were asked to simply stop insisting that marriage was only for heterosexual couples. And many did. And the rest of that slope is unfortunately history now. All right, verses four and five. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Physical pleasure is not evil. God made sex for the enjoyment of his people within the bounds of marriage. God made food for the nourishment of his people. It is neither sex nor food that are evil. It is when our attitude towards these things becomes perverted or distorted that they become evil. It is when our focus becomes these things instead of God, or we twist them from the way they were intended for us to enjoy, that they become evil. In Mark 7, 18 through 21, Jesus says, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding as well? <clears throat> Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thereby he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which comes out of the person is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. Everything was created good. At creation, God called them good. Satan's goal is to take the good things of God and pervert them into evil. Verse six and seven. In pointing out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have been following. But stay away from worthless stories that are typical of old women, 
Rather, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So here, Paul is going to shift focus just a little. He's been talking to Timothy about false teaching within the church, but now he's going to get a little personal with Timothy. Paul is reminding Timothy to himself stay constantly nourished on truth. He is reminding Timothy that the truth isn't just for the people that he leads. It isn't just for the sake of guarding others' hearts, but it is also personally for Timothy. Paul is saying to Timothy, before you feed the people, you need to feed you. Before you apply the word of God to everyone else, you need to be applying it to you. Before you preach the sermon to the people, you need to be preaching it to yourself. The source of this nourishment is so very vital. This nourishment should be coming first and primarily from the word of God. We live in a time of unprecedented information. There are so many voices vying for our attention. There are always new books, new videos, new podcasts, new ideas presented every day, many right at our fingertips. If you are looking for information about theology or biblical ideas, you can find hundreds of people talking about every imaginable point of view or interpretation. Even within the category of trustworthy and sound biblical options, there are so many voices and opinions trying to speak truth into our ears and hearts. Are we turning to those options first or to the word of God first? Are we relying on other people to tell us what the Bible says or means, or are we seeking the Holy Spirit? Because we are accountable before God for what we do with the truth that we have been given. Don't you think that we should first and foremost be checking everything we are listening to, especially if we plan to share it or use it to teach by holding it up against the Bible? Pastor Doug said in his teaching from Jude a few weeks ago, What makes the multitudes of warnings so stark is there has never been a time in all of history when the truth of God, excuse me, the truth of the word of God has been made more available and accessible as in the day we are living. Yet at the same time, there has never been a time in all of history that the word of God has been more maligned and abused as they are today. We need to be committed to truth. So committed to truth that we just avoid the nonsense. We avoid the old wives' tales and endless speculations. We stay away from the worthless ideas of the world that are trying to bring their worldly wisdom into our biblical truth. The gospel, it's not that complicated. It's simple for a reason, because God loves us. He wants us to understand his grace and mercy. He wants us to be able to follow after him. Complicating the gospel makes it more appealing to our pride because it makes it less attainable. But the gospel was not meant to be unattainable. Without Christ, eternal life is already unattainable. The law was unattainable. Through Christ, grace makes it simple enough that even the simplest among us can understand it. We are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Paul now is going to set up an intentional paradox, meaning he is going to be countering the hypocritical and false discipline that was being taught by the Gnostics with true and worthy discipline. The point of discipline is not self-denial or an attempt to earn favor with God or set you apart to be more godlike than other believers. 
this false idea, this appeals to the heart of legalism. I see this played out often with my 11 and 12 year old daughters. I come home after leaving them for a period of time and I am immediately met with a list of things they either personally did or their sister did not do. <laughs> their heart is not to please me. Their heart is not to try to emulate me as their mother to their younger siblings while I was absent. Their heart is to be seen as the best child. And we expect this because they're children and they are learning and they are growing. But we are not children. We are mature followers of Christ. Are we still making lists and comparing them to others? Are we denying ourselves pleasure because we think we're proving our worth? Or are we disciplining ourselves for the purpose of being like God? Are we seeking to model that heart of God to others? Discipline is good and necessary when it is done with the right intention. But discipline for the sake of legalism or pride is just more legalism and pride. The purpose of our discipline is to make us more like Christ. Now, maybe that does mean not getting married. Maybe that does mean that you don't eat certain foods because they cause someone else to stumble or your attitude towards that food is sinful. But that would be coming from a place of humility, grace, and obedience. It would not be coming from a place of rule following or misguided judgment. Verse 8. For bodily training is just slightly beneficial, but godliness is beneficial for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The focus on the physical can be both positive and negative. You can go extreme in either direction. You can become obsessed with perfecting your physical body, but you can also become obsessed with neglecting it. Physical exercise is not bad but the physical body is secondary to our spiritual soul. Now, we should be taking the care of our physical bodies seriously, keeping ourselves healthy enough or fit enough to do the work of the Lord, that the work that he's called us to do, that is a part of us being a good steward of what God has given us. We don't want to be in the position that we cannot do something that God has called us to do because we have been so undisciplined with the holy temple that he has given us. Now, Short disclaimer here, this is not the same as having a medical condition or something outside of your control impacting your health. I'm just talking about making wise choices in the care of your body so that it can be used for the Lord. We don't want to disqualify ourselves from something that God wants us to do because we've been lazy or we've been a glutton. But focusing too much on our physical bodies, that can become sinful also. If we're so focused on the physical that we lose sight of the spiritual, we're of no heavenly good anymore. God does not call us to perfect our broken, sin-tainted bodies. Let's face it, these bodies are not gonna last. No matter how hard we try, we can buy every skin cream on the market, we can do everything, we're still gonna age. We're still going to decay. And at some point, we are gonna run out of miles on these bodies. But when we get to heaven, we will be restored into new bodies that won't decay. Philippians 3.21 says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So our focus should be on the kingdom of God, not on our earthly vessels, because some days our bodies are going to be perfect anyway. Amen? <laughs> it is godliness that holds the promise of eternal life. Our lives here and now are blessed 
by living with a focus on godliness, but even more so is our heavenly future. Living a life of godliness is the key to being called a good and faithful servant. Verse 9 and 10. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is this we labor, labor and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers. It is for this, godliness, the promise of life. These eternal things are our focus. These are the things we suffer for. These are the things we are persecuted for. These are the things that we trust the Lord for. Mark 8.35 says, For whoever would save his soul would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. When our hope is set on the living God, our perspective changes. It isn't about the legalistic sacrifice of trying to earn salvation anymore. It's about the kingdom of God. We give our lives freely to his purpose, to his will, because we recognize that it's not our life anymore. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our lives have a renewed purpose and our sacrifice reflects that purpose. Verse 10 also has a little theological gold mine within it. If you, like me, are a self-professing Bible nerd and you love theology and particularly theological debates, this one is for you. Paul puts into the words of this exhortation an answer to one of the most hotly debated Christian theologies, limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. This is another one of those points I could camp out on all morning long and still barely touch it. So I am just going to give you the like one, maybe two minute overview. Paul says, the living God who is the savior of all mankind, especially of believers. All mankind. That's everybody. Christ's blood is sufficient for everybody. This directly counters the Calvinist view that atonement was only for the elect. Paul does not say only those who believe, but especially those who believe. This is similar to the language of Galatians 6.10. So then we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Do good to everyone and especially other believers. Savior of all mankind and especially believers. Why especially? Because we will partake in the atonement by grace through faith. Christ's blood on the cross was sufficient and available for everybody, but only those who believe can receive the gift. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for, for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Atonement is sufficient. It's not limited. The limitation is ours, not God's. It's not atonement that is limited. It is acceptance of the atonement that is limited because we choose not to take it. We, as sinful man, limit ourselves from atonement by our pride and our rejection of God. 
Why does this distinction matter? Why did I not just pass over this small phrase, but instead dove into a rather impassioned theology lesson? Well, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul just spent nine verses telling us we're the guardians of truth, the whole truth. And that's a pretty big and important truth. Jesus Christ is the savior of all mankind, especially me, especially you. But also because verse 11 says, prescribe and teach these things. Paul is stating emphatically, teach truth. Teach it with authority. Teach it with the authority of God's word because it is God's word and he has called you to do it. Teach godliness, teach the gospel to everyone who will listen and even those who don't want to listen. Whew, all right, verse 12. We're, we're in the roundup now. We just have a few verses left, I promise. <laughs> Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. I see the heart of a father in Paul's words. Timothy was probably being bullied by the opinions of believers within the church of Ephesus. This is the problem with legalism. It makes us think our opinions are doctrines. It makes us think we have the authority to hold them over others. They likely saw this young pastor with a timid nature and felt emboldened to push their agenda. Paul says to Timothy, don't let them. Stay focused. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't back down from addressing the things that need to be addressed. You are God appointed. Be kind, hear them out, but then move in the direction God has called you to lead this church. Be faithful with what you have been given. Be an example of what godliness looks like that others can follow. And this flies right in the face of the do as I say, not as I do of legalism. Live a life of godliness that others can follow. Verse 13, until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation and teaching. Paul is now circling back and reinforcing the instructions he is giving Timothy. It's all about the word of God about truth. Keep focused on the truth. As we love to say around here, keep the main thing the main thing. Don't complicate the gospel. It's about Jesus, just Jesus. Stay focused on him who is truth. And do it for the world to see. Don't hide your devotion to truth, but read, speak, and teach the truth to the people. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was granted to you through words of prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Paul is again reiterating for Timothy that his calling, his giftings, and his ministry are from the Lord. They were given by the Lord, they were affirmed by other believers, and they are profitable for the kingdom. Keep using your gifts. Persevere, persevere, persevere. Verse 15 and 16. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. It is time to be all in. The calling of God is your whole life. It's your whole purpose. It is the all-encompassing focus of your life. Be devoted to the truth so that your progress may be evident to all. This word progress comes from a Greek military term. It's the setting of a course or a path 
that can clearly be followed by those that are coming behind. So they would send a scout out to look at the terrain, determine what the safest path to take was, and then move debris or obstacles out of that path. That is the progress that is being made. So then the soldiers could follow behind. This is guiding through the dangers and the landmines of faith. This is a part of teaching truth. You recognize the dangers, the lies, the falsehoods, and you try to guide those you are teaching away from those dangers and onto the clear path of truth. As you grow, as you learn, you leave a path that others can follow. So you will save yourself and those who hear you. How? By pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to the truth, because the truth will set you, them, all of us free. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are truth, that you have given us truth and we don't have to question what your word says. And we, we pray today that you would give us the courage to stand on that truth, that you would embolden us with the reality that we are guardians of your truth and that we are called to represent you to the world around us. And I just pray as we break out into small groups today, even if they're groups that look a little bit different than normal because we have a smaller number, that we will, um, we will just come together and we will rejoice over your truth, over your gospel, that we will share with one another those, those things that we have, have set out to just um, to know her from you and to know her truth, God. And I just pray that you would bless this time together, you would bless our discussion and the rest of our morning. Amen.